Welcome back to FinTalk brought to you by Vermin. Here we discuss pressing topics in fintech, regtech, covering regulatory, collateral, and digital across banking and insurance and finance. Vermin has been proud to deliver innovative software solutions in the industry with stability and cost efficiency for our global Rostock clients. With over 20 years of trusted transformation in finance and insurance, we're bringing industry's top expertise to FinTalk. I'm Jared Akta, and I'll be your host for this podcast. Welcome back to FinTalk, brought to you by Vermeg. I'm Jared Akta, your host. Uh, so today I have me Rita Dupree and Rogan Peterson from Monocle. Welcome. Thanks, Jared. Nice to be here. Yes, very nice to meet you. Thank you. So before we dive into introductions, so today's topic is model risk management. So we'll dive in and we'll talk about more. Just for the people that don't know of you, a bit of introduction, Rita first. Hi, so yeah, I'm uh, Rieta. I'm a consulting director for Monocle Solutions in the UK and Europe. We're a management consulting firm. We focus on regulatory compliance, um, risk, any sort of regulatory reporting and integration integration of data. Um, the firm started in South Africa roughly 21 years ago, and we have expanded into the UK about eight years ago and steadily building the brand and, and helping financial institutions get their regulatory reporting sorted out. Fantastic. Rogan. Yeah, I'm Rogan. I'm a principal at Monocle Solutions. I've, I've been with Monocle around eight years now and around three years ago, I moved over to the UK and I'm assisting obviously the UK company with uh, rolling out regulations to the, our UK-based clients. And that's about it for now. Yeah. Fantastic. Welcome, guys. So today's topic is model risk management. There was a supervisory statement by the regulator uh, SS123, which goes live on the most random date, 17th of May, which is a Friday, 2024. At least it's not Friday the 13th. <laughs> yeah, maybe someone was playing. Yeah, <laughs> this goes live. This is kind of more around making sure banks in the UK have a robust uh, model framework. There are principles uh, involved in this, and we're going to dive into that a little bit more. But from an initial applicability point of view, who, who's impacted? So the statement is rolled out to all financial institutions. I think the initial focus is on banks that have AIRB or IRB approval from the regulator, right? And and that makes a whole lot of sense because if you think about the models that those guys use, these are models that drive decision-making, that drive the capital that the bank holds. But I think it is worth noting that this will not stick to IRB and the regulator has already sort of said that this is going to be a much wider regulation. So it is important for every bank, whether you're IRB compliant or not, to actually start preparing your model risk framework and to make sure that you are ready to actually report to the regulator on how you are governing your model risk. Yeah, I think, I mean, that it's, it's very important for banks to realize that because, well, as Rita said, some banks aren't IRB focused. Now is the time to start reacting to this because it is coming their way. So really everyone from our perspective. Yeah, I think, you know, we'll we go back to puzzle 3 and we'll talk about that, where IRB banks have to reapply for their models and that's probably their projects underway already around this. The time frame of implementation of May 24 is not far off now. You know, we're five, six months away. Yeah, I think it's also important to look at what is this time frame around. The time frame is not around saying you need to have everything fixed by May 17th. What it does say is that you need to have a good understanding. You need to have an inventory of all the models in your organization and you need to have a remediation plan. So we're not saying you need to have perfect models and you have to have a perfect model risk framework. But you have to have actions and you have to have people responsible for owning those actions and fixing them in due course. What's also important to know about that, though, is that with the 17th May deadline, there is actually a tremendous amount of work to get them to that stage. So while we don't have to have anything perfect, looking at what you have to do to get to that point, 
uh, it's a very manually intensive and there needs to be a lot of effort put into those actions. So to, well, before I dive into the principles, we'll dive into the principles, but one of the key things that stands out when I was reading the, the statement was around SMF accountability. It's governance frameworks, right? And that, that's huge. And that's been on the regulators' radar. It's a common theme. It's not yeah. new. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's, it's kind of on every audit paper and yeah. everything that you see, governance, framework, controls, SMF. But the fact that they're now calling it out and saying, right, SMF, you are now accountable. This now has to go to an audit committee. This now has to go to board. How does that now change the kind of landscape for firms? I think we've all known that this is really important, right? But we, and, and I think in every, you've rightly said, in every sort of governance and compliance guideline that the Bank of England is, has issued, there is mention of the board. There is mention of having senior stakeholder buy-in and having senior stakeholders drive this. I think the fact that it is now sort of included in the SMF's mandate, where we need to physically write this down and say who is responsible for that, makes it a, a slightly more high-priority item internally. But I think also we need to realize again that it's not, they are ultimately accountable, they are responsible for driving this out. But we shouldn't forget about the role that model developers, model users, model owners play in this, right? Those guys still on the ground level have the responsibility of making sure that they comply to the model risk framework of the organization. But how we define what this model risk framework is, what's the risk appetites, that now becomes more of the SMF's responsibility. And then making sure that the model owners, the users, they actually comply with the framework of the bank. And I think you mentioned it off, off air, Jawad, is there needs to be a, a cultural shift. And they, you can see what, what the regulators are doing. They're pushing for banks to introduce a culture of risk appetite management through these actions and through the model risk management frameworks that they have. And introducing the RMF is a, a tool or a manner in which they make banks aware that cultural shift needs to take place. Yeah, and it's a kind of nice segue. Change, any change requires kind of mindset change, not just from a kind of user level, from a board level. It's, it's, it's a cultural. Banks are so embedded in the way they do things and the way they have done things. It works, doesn't, don't break. Yeah. So, but it's quite clear in the statement and you know, on the first paragraph is the models that, are, that banks have are inadequate. And even though we've had IFS 9 around for a few years now, and kind of that's a model for everyone to, to implement at all kinds of levels, it's still not quite there. Does this now reinforce that kind of cultural shift now? Or, I mean, we look at Basel, Basel we look at BSB um, 239. That's been going for years. You know, still quite, you know, <laughs> so ultimately, banks should really yeah. be compliant on that basis because you should be able to, but everyone knows Basel's not a regulatory committee. Uh, so you can't really enforce that action. So does this now change the dynamics on, in the way that banks approach it? I think, the, I think what they've also done is to kind of stem this cultural shift is they shocked the system in terms of changing up or at least adding to the definition of how a model is actually defined within a bank. Traditionally, as you say, you know, banks recognize models as very s static kind of line items. You know, traditionally, your quantitative statistical-based deterministic models. Now they've introduced this very broad definition and I think forced banks to really take a step back and look at you know, what actually is a model 
and then take you know kind of cognizance of the entire bank and then look at that in you know, accordance to the, the principles and then you know in, in actually force banks to take that stepping stone to take that step back and do have that cultural shift that we mentioned I think we also need to remember that model governance model risk management it's not new right it's been around we've had I don't know credit scoring models we've had liquidity risk models we've had all of these things for many years what is different is the regulatory focus the regulators have over the last I don't know how many ever years had had a more and more of a focus on governance and compliance BCBS 239 good example we need to know and understand our data we need to know where our data comes from and we need to have comfort that it is you know we're reporting on the right thing BCBS had a slightly different focus in the sense that we focused on our GSIPs and our DSIPs to start with. And in the UK specifically, we found that then we got these DSEO letters, the regulatory of reliability of regulatory returns, which to be honest is a flavor of the BCBS 239 regulation. It is kind of saying, you know, we need to have comfort that what you are reporting in your regulatory returns is the right data. It reconciles to what you are reporting in your financial data. And this is a similar trend. Banks must have always done, they, they always had in, independent validations of their models. They always had a governance process. But how well did they monitor this? What was the controls and the framework around this? Did they really go in and review when they felt they needed to review these models? And with this new paper published, I think the emphasis is on making sure that internally, first of all, you are comfortable with your frameworks and you are adhering to your frameworks. Because I... Based on experience, you'll say that a model gets validated every year. And sometimes if you look at the dashboard that reports the last validation <laughs> and the last time that we did documentation, it may have been three years ago, right? And yeah. is that really good enough? Is that really a good enough indication to use a model like that to indicate risk in a world that is changing as quickly as it is? Yeah, and we talked about, uh, raised a few points there about principles, identification, inventories, governance, and, and all these. We, if we take the big banks are doing IRB outside and we focus on the other banks. They'd be like, well, I have someone that knows how they're doing that Excel. <laughs> <laughs> it works. Yeah. The model is probably also in Excel. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I, for me, that then I can go, oh yeah, I can take that. I, I, yeah, it works. But pivot table doesn't break. So, <laughs> you know. Exactly. But how does that then change or how does that impact? Because the whole impact, you know, it's quite clear that it says, yes, at the moment, it's higher bid, but we're going to now start the, you know, we're going to have to focus on the other banks as well that need to map this in control in place. How do they then, looking at the principles, tackle each one? So I think the most challenging principle for me is probably the first principle. Again, the governance, we speak about where governance needs to be set and, and making those changes in the board level and then filtering them down into the organization. I think that is achievable. We've spoken about validation and having monitoring on your models and those things exist today, right? What we need to start thinking about is that definition. So firstly, the paper has a very broad definition of what is a model. Mm. It could be anything, right? So how do I, first of all, make sure that I have an internal definition of a model that is something that I can sort of sign up to, that I can say, I'm going to go classify the calculations because some people will say that calculations are models according to this definition. And then I can start creating my inventory. And then the second part is creating that inventory, right? If we think about the number of things that could, according to this definition, be classified as a model you'll be documenting inventory for the next 10 years, right? <laughs> Regardless of your IRB approach or not. I exactly. Mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. there are so many yeah. things that could actually comply with this definition. So, so then it is about refining the scope. What is it that actually influences my decision-making as a firm? What is it that my board is interested in? Those are the things that I need to start off with, right? And then 
still in the first principle is then coming up with your tiering framework. How do I determine what is important to me and what is not important to me? And then I think, yes, there's an element of work that needs to be done to say, looking at my internal model risk framework, am I confident that it adheres to the new principles that were set out by SS123? In some cases, we need to refine, we need to update those things. But again, doing model validation, doing model monitoring, those things exist. A bank cannot exist without having those things yeah. because we've got models. We need to make sure that we're making decisions off the back of sound information, right? But it is making sure that I'm actually applying that framework to the right stuff. Am I applying it to, to models that are important to me from a decision-making perspective? And, that, and that's where we, you know, we mentioned earlier where the, the, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done to get to that stage. And, and that lies in that first principle and, and shows you how important that first principle is because you, you get that right and you do it once off and you, and you put the effort in there. The rest of the, the principles exist and it might be about updating them or it might be about refining your process, but the, you know, they're there. Um, you spoke about the 17th yeah. of May earlier. Principle mm. one is the most important one for 17th of May because I need to have a remediation plan ready, right? Yeah. I'm not saying I need to be perfect. I need to have a remediation plan. I need to know what I need to remediate. I need to know mm. what are my models, right? I need to create my inventory. I need to have my definition sets. And then I need to go and evaluate and say, based on this tiering system that I have, am I applying governance to these models or do I need to do something in order to make sure that I actually track and monitor this a little bit better? So if you think about it, for me, the 17th of May, yes, there are things that we need to do at a board level. We need to review our risk appetites. We need to review our frameworks and our, our methodologies. But the key driver is I actually need to know what it is that I need to remediate. Um, and that, for me, starts in principle one. Yeah. It's more, but if we start with that, the it's open to interpretation, right? Bank to bank. There's going to be huge, there are going to be people that are going to just spend... Yes. I think that's the highlight of the paper really is how yeah. ambiguous this definition is and it's going to result in people spending a lot of time in really figuring that out which is something that we've also spent a lot of time talking about and how you focus yourself on that first principle and how you apply a technique to really scope out what this means for you once you get there you can start the work but until you get there you can't do anything else really yeah Look, I think we're grateful it's five principles and not the 14 that the nine gave us. So so there's still some things to be like to be grateful for, but whenever we speak about principles based, there is interpretation, right? When it's not as straightforward, this is the rule that you need to apply, then there is room for interpretation between the different financial institutions. Yeah, my my concern with always with pips like this is what is the outcome? What is the regular trying to do? It's trying to strengthen the processes that firms have. But when the definition is so vague, you're Bank to bank, same same banks, same business model. One's doing twenty, one's doing five, one's doing. You know, it becomes very varied. If if there was perfect world, we'd had this is the definition. This is what we need. It becomes easier then, doesn't it? And then it's applicable. Yes, I can. Yes, this makes sense. That makes sense. It. That's the kind of tricky part. That is the tricky part, but then we've also now mandated this in the SMF's responsibilities, right? We've said you are responsible. The FCA has oversight there, right? So so we've made it very much the responsibility of the SMF to make sure that they are comfortable with what you have defined as a model. Now, yes, when it's principle-based, there will be a, a wide range of how we interpret mm. things and how we implement things. But I think I'm hoping that principle two, which is the governance principle, will help us to actually make sure that there is a level of consistency across the organization. And I think for me, 
With all of these things, the same thing applies to BCBS239, is if you're making it a tick box exercise, if you're doing this because the regulator is asking me to do this, if I just want to tick the box and say, yes, I can prove to you that I've got control, you're going to do the bare minimum, right? It is when you start doing this because you understand the value in it from a decision-making perspective. You understand that it can actually give you better information. It can make you, it can help you make better decisions. And then you're actually going to probably go a little bit further than what the regulator is asking you, right? You might start off with a regulatory sort of scope and then you might say, you know what, this is actually doing really good for my organization. I need to roll it out a little bit wider. That's when it becomes really beneficial. If it's not just ticking a box and saying, yes, Mr. Regulator, I've actually done this and I can show you there's a plan and there's an inventory. I mean, that broad definition, I mean, what are banks going to do? They're going to, they're going to, at a board level, discuss this and more than likely err on the side of caution to expand the scope further than maybe what the regulator would have expected mm. rather than make it less. I, I think that's what you would likely see. I think from a regulator's point of view, they want to get banks to really think about this, to really think about things that may be included in uh, their data, in, their uh, model inventory, even if they don't include things, it gets the thought process going and really opens them up to considering all aspects of their business. I think that's you know, probably a purpose of why it's so vague. Yeah, regulatory change has always been, seems to be a tick box exercise, isn't it? Regulators said this, right, board says, go and get it done. Go and hire a, a risk person, go and hire consultants, you know, and get it done. It's becomes a tick box exercise. It's how do you then, to change the perception to say, okay, actually, this is bringing benefit to the firm. It goes back to the original point of cultural change. Cultural isn't change it? comes back to cultural change. It always comes back to cultural change. Regulation is not, yes, it's a burden. Of course it is. It is. There's so much of it, and so much change. It's like, this is another change adding to, you know, as a board member, I've got Basel, I've got the IFRS, I've got ESG. Now I've got this landed on my desk as well. So you can see where they're saying, yeah. actually, what do we need to do? On the point of ESG, and I'll get back to your question in a sec, but on the point of ESG, that's just going to add another layer of complexity because mm. ESG will bring its own host of models yeah, um, that yeah. will influence decision-making that I now need to add to my model risk management, right? So, yeah. so ESG is going to open a whole new chapter to... New to, models as well. Ones yeah. that we're not models used to working with. with. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, those, and, they're, and they're just... Yeah. Years, I mean, look at some of those lookbacks are 30 years, 40 years, you know, it's, it's crazy. Some of those, so those models, that's a whole different kind of worms. Whole different story. Don't want to go down Whole that, different story, know? right? But I think coming back to how do we make this more than just a tick box exercise? For me, it is, it, it is down to having senior stakeholders drive out the value in this, right? So, so we have, for us as a firm, we've got tremendous experience in the BCBS journey and we've seen it done on various different levels of the spectrum from a simple tick box and doing the bare minimum to actually going and implementing some of these principles wider than what the regulator is asking you to do. And the reason for this is just because in South Africa, the banks were all, they were all required to comply with ECBS 239 that because everybody is a DCIP in, in South Africa, all the big banks at least. So what we have seen is if there is vision and strategic appetite from senior management who can actually say, listen here guys, if we do this the right way, and if we invest a little bit of money to create an environment where we have controlled data between risk and finance. We're using a single platform. We're using similar interpretations, similar definitions. It's not always possible between risk and finance. But if you can create that environment where the benefit is felt not just on the regulatory reporting side, but also the valuable MI that you can get out of that, right? Mm. Because that's where the decisions get made. Yes, we want the regulatory reporting to reflect our decisions, but our decisions get made out of the MI side of things. When you get 
value out of the environment that you've created, the controls that you've created, when you see how much time you are saving in doing analysis and reconciliations between two different data sources, then you can actually start saying, guys, this is very valuable. I'm saving time, I'm saving resources, and I'm getting good quality information to base my decisions on. It will take time. It will take time and it will take the right senior views to push this into the organization. It's not going to start with a guy saying, yeah, I want to do better model governance. I think this is going to, you know, bring in the big bucks. So it is difficult and it's a case by case basis. I think banks will approach it differently and also depending on the appetite that they have for projects. You used the, the example of, of ESG and that's a, a great example. If, if you look at banks wanting to use this as a tick box exercise, it might be quite easy to look at their current models, their pricing models or, or whatever it may be and fit this into the principles sorry, and, and tier these according to a, a very simple tiering system and get that tick. The benefit that you could get between really putting focus on, on the statements and something along the, the tiering system, having a well-designed and well-functioning tiering system, you know, when you're getting models, new models such as the ESG models where people aren't familiar with, if you've got a well-designed tiering system and you tier that according to that tiering system, that helps you or it re- really shows you how you need to govern that model going forward. So it really takes that model and guides you as to what other principles you, and how you apply those principles going forward. So it's it's going to make you more efficient in the future, regardless of how you operate right now. Yeah, I think having the governance, having the adhering to the principles now will better suit you for the future, for the likes of ESG, as an example, which has vast amount of modeling data coming into it. It's going to be crazy. And if you just look at the complexity of the modeling landscape, we've got machine learning models becoming yeah. more and more relevant. We I mean, there's all this talk about AI, and I know there's AI models, especially in the fraud space, that we are starting to actually get regulatory approvals for in some of the European yeah. countries, right? So it is not going to get easier, mm. right? It's not going to get easier, and I think the the risk is that we build these models and we have a handful of people who actually know and understand what the outcome of these models mean. If we don't have a proper model governance framework and we don't have proper model risk management, how are we going to run our organizations on the back of the outputs produced by these machine learning models, right? It's, it's a bit scary. I think at your Future Fit conference, there was a question about when the robots take over. <laughs> Maybe this will help us yeah. steer clear of when the robots take over, right? Because yeah. there has to be a bit of control in it. Yeah, no, it's true. This last few points on it. In the, the, the CEO letter, there was a, a point where SMFs were delegating responsibility downwards. So actually, they were <laughs> passing the buck, really. That's likelihood that could happen here as well because this is big, right? To own that as an SMF, if I'm an SMF, you know, to pull that on my books as well, that's something. Is there likelihood they're probably just going to say we'll delegate it down and they'll delegate that down as well? There is a differentiation between accountability and responsibility, right? And I think what they are saying is the SMFs ultimately have to be accountable for this. Are they going to be the guys who do the actual implementations, who do the actual work? They need assistance, right? And therefore, it has yeah. to be pushed down in order for you to actually efficiently roll out a model risk framework. We spoke about model users, model developers, model owners previously. Those guys have to be involved and there has to be an element of delegation down to that level. But ultimately, whether you have a framework or not and whether you've remediated and whether it complies with SS123, that has to be the accountability of the SMF. Mm. Final thoughts? Interesting road ahead. I think this is the start for us. I don't think, I think SS123 is, like we said, it's, it focuses on IIB banks. It's a start. It gives us some good principles. I think there will probably be some revisions, but I think the key thing is everybody needs to start thinking about putting more refinement and more structure to how they are doing model risk governance. 
yes, we can use Excel spreadsheets to do that, <laughs> but I think there are some interesting technological solutions that we can use. I think it's all about also making sure we understand where in the process our models are. We all know that the difference between the amount of models that get developed in the financial industry versus what actually gets produced or gets used in production is there's a big difference there, right? We develop yeah. a lot of models these days, but what actually ultimately ends up in my decision making is limited, right? It is making sure that when I have that subset of models, I actually know what the outputs mean. And I, as a decision maker in the bank, I have comfort about the decision that I'm making because my model is giving me the information that I think it is, right? And Governance controls, these are themes that the regulator has been pushing out for quite a bit of time, and I don't think it'll stop. I think we do need that in order to make sure that we can trust the financial information that we are using. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is this is not going away. This is this is the start, and I think banks should use this as an opportunity to get ahead of the curve. There's a lot they need to do for the 17th of May deadline, but doing that in a smart way, uh, creating a remediation plan, and then creating the workflow including how you embed this within your organization, how you have that cultural shift, how you pay more attention to this on an ongoing basis will allow you to really ride the wave of the next regulation and the one thereafter. You're not looking at wholesale changes then, you're looking at a well-functioning operating model that allows you to make changes very quickly and easily with small updates as, opposing, as opposed to having to completely relook at your model risk frameworks uh, every time a, a new regulation comes out. So now's the time to do that. Spend a little bit of effort, of effort now. Do it smartly, and uh, you know you'll be up to standards uh, for this, for this foreseeable future with um, really minor change. And I think yeah. we can't emphasize enough the do it smartly part. If you're going to try yeah, and do it for yeah, everything in one go, you're going to yeah. set yourself up for failure. Right? It is making sure that you could refine your scope to what is really important to you as an organization, get the foundations right, and then you can always roll it out wider. Yeah, that's always the case, isn't it, on any kind of implementation? Thank you for your time, guys. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. 